Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, what a special time yet again, as we should do every single day of our lives, to reflect upon and remember the person and the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, our great Redeemer, the great sin-bearer on behalf of sinners like us who deserve only hell and condemnation, that, Lord, out of your great love, you would have sent your Son, Jesus, into the world to die for us, So that, Lord, we might have hope, that we might be those people who would put our trust in Him alone. Lord, thank You for that. Thank You that we have hope in this wicked and perverse generation, and that we have a mission, as my brother said, to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. That is a saving death, that people can trust in Jesus and be delivered and rescued from their sins, from Your judgment, Your just and righteous judgment. Father, I pray that we might be and continue to proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Father, I do pray this morning, as there are those who are Your people who are hurting this morning, those who have uh, deep trials, great trials, who are experiencing emotional distress, Father, financial difficulties, relational difficulties. Father, I pray for Your comfort and Your encouragement upon Your people. I pray for those who are visiting with us, who don't know You, Lord. I pray that they would, this morning, find a gracious God that they can cry out to, that you would deliver them and rescue them from their sin, Father, and that they might, rather than being your enemies, that they might become your friends and, more importantly, your children adopted into your family by faith in Jesus. Father, we pray for this morning. We pray that you would give us soft and tender hearts to hear your word. I pray that you would help us to remove distractions from our minds. Lord, so many of us just bring baggage into these times and we forget about how critical and crucial and how much you are worthy of us to worship you in spirit and in truth. May we do that this morning. Father, remove those distractions from us. Help us to focus in on the message that you would have for us this morning. We ask you all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27 is our text for this morning, and we're going to begin to look at at that passage this morning. We will not finish it. It's actually Mark chapter 12, forgive me, verses 28 through 34. Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand for the reading of God's Word in honor of God's Word. Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. This is God's Word. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing... And recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is the chief of Christian affections. 
the chief of Christian affections. Jonathan Edwards lived from October 5th, 1703 to March 22nd, 1758. Many of you are familiar with Jonathan Edwards. He was considered perhaps the greatest American theologian, not only of his time, but up until now even. Many consider him the greatest American theologian. The man was a brilliant man, a brilliant Christian, obviously all by God's grace. He wrote all kinds on all kinds of subjects from science to nature to history to anthropology, stuff on anthropology to biology and all kinds of fields of science. But of course, his greatest contributions came in the area of theology. Edwards preached literally thousands of sermons to the benefit of so many at the time and um, up until now. He wrote about all kinds of topics related to theology, from doctrine, dissertations, and so forth, to practical issues related to how we might live the Christian life. He was a brilliant theologian by God's grace. But of particular interest to me, especially the last couple of years, was that Edwards lived during the time of what is known as the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening. A time of great revival. A time of unusual spiritual vigor on the part of many, when many experienced an unusual zeal for God and for God's Word. The Great Awakening. But many... Many people who lived during the time of Edwards and the Great Awakening were very skeptical about these revivals. They, instead of being encouraged, many of these people felt that these were mere exaggerations from people who were fixated with a sense of emotionalism and misplaced zeal. And while Edwards himself wanted to be careful too, and he wanted to be careful with counterfeit experiences, he didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. And so... In response to these concerns and to everything that he was witnessing regarding the Great Awakening and these amazing revivals, Edwards wrote one of my favorite theological works, The Religious Affections. If you have never read that book, you need to read that book, The Religious Affections. It's not an easy read, okay? Some of you have read this work and you know that it takes time and you get to go almost like a page per day just in a time of devotion maybe before you read the word of god or after you read the word of god whatever works best for you the religious affections and his primary objective in writing this particular book or treatise was to answer the question of the day how can we judge whether our religion is real how can we judge whether our religion is real And as you read Edwards' treatise, The Religious Affections, you realize that what he means by religion is really Christianity. How do we know whether our Christianity is true or false? Was the question he wrote to answer. And throughout his work, Edwards makes the point that if you have the real thing, if you have true Christianity, true religion, then there will be great heart attitudes that he calls great heart affections that will, that will naturally and inevitably be evident in your life and the way that you live. He calls them affections, religious affections, that will be a part of the way that you live because the Spirit of God works within you and the Spirit of God is going to bear the fruit of these affections in your life, such as heartfelt joy, such as heartfelt peace, 
such as heartfelt holy desire to be like Jesus, such as uh, the desire to, to have zeal for the glory of God, to see God glorified, such as compassion, such as gratitude that leads to obedience, that affection will be a reality in your life, such as zeal for God's name to be proclaimed in this world for evangelism. And many other heart affections like these, Edward says, will be a reality if your Christianity is real because the Spirit of God is working in and through you to bear for His fruit in your life, the Spirit's fruit. And at the top of this list, when he begins this treatise on the religious affections, is this. The greatest of these affections, says Edwards, is love. Love. Love, not even love for others first and foremost. We'll get to that. But first and foremost, love for God. Because love, a passionate, zealous love for God, says Edwards, will lead to love for others and for a sense of mission to tell others about this love in this world. The more that you understand the profound depth of God's love for you, supremely displayed to you in Christ Jesus, the more you will be driven, not out of duty, but out of delight, to want to tell other people about the Lord Jesus Christ and to love other people. Listen to what Edwards writes. But it is, a, it is doubtless true, he says, and evident from Scripture that the essence of all true religion lies in holy love. For love is not only one of the affections, but it is the first and chief of the affections and the fountain of all the affections. From love arises hatred of those things which are contrary to what we love or which oppose and thwart us in those things that we delight in. And from the various exercises of love arise holy desire, hope, fear, joy, grief, gratitude, from a vigorous, affectionate, and fervent love for God will necessarily, he says, arise other religious affections. Hence will arise an intense hatred and abhorrence of sin out of a heart of love, fear of sin out of a heart of love, and a dread of God's displeasure, gratitude to God for His goodness, contentment, and joy in God when He is graciously and sensibly present, and grief when He is absent, and a joyful hope when future enjoyment of God is expected and fervent zeal for the glory of God. He goes on and on. But his point is, ultimately all of our Christian experience flows from and is a direct result of love for God, for God and consequently or conversely, a deficiency of love for Him leads to corruption in life, in our Christian life. And a lack of love for others. It was a very important work that, that, that Jonathan Edwards wrote at the time. And it's had a profound impact on many. But beloved, none of what Edwards says regarding the preeminence of love should surprise us, right? Because we read, in, for example, in a passage like 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 13, these words, Now abide faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And many other passages speak of the, of the prominence of love. First of all, love toward God. And we're going to see out of the uh, overflow of that love for God, love for one another. And it should also not surprise us that Edwards writes this. Because this is what Jesus says essentially in our passage this morning. 
That love is the preeminent thing that we ought to be focusing upon. Here is this man that we just read about, this inquirer who, who arises from the crowds with a sense of favor towards Jesus, believing that Jesus had answered favor, favorably. And he asks Jesus, in essence, what does true religion consist of? In their context, that's really what he was asking himself. What does true religion consist of? In asking what is the greatest and foremost commandment of all? And Jesus unpacks this for him and for us. Our Lord reminds us today of what's most important and what we should be focusing upon the most. And I want you to consider first, as we look at this powerful passage, in verse 28, consider with me the candid question. The candid question. Verse 28, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, the religious leaders in Jesus, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? What commandment is the foremost of all? That was the great question of the day. You know, personally, I love conferences. Over the years, I love attending conferences, pastor conferences, ligonier conferences, um, Desiring God conferences, all these conferences. I love the fellowship. I love the speakers. I love the food. All of that. I love conferences. And in a couple of those conferences that I've attended, there was this open mic time for Q&A, for questions and answers of the key speakers or one particular speaker who might have been the keynote speaker of that conference. And I love those open mic um, setups because you have these people walking up to the mic and you have this one opportunity to ask the speaker or speakers that one theological question or doctrinal question you've always wanted to know about, right? What is that? What would you ask? If you were in front of Jesus here, transporting yourself to his day, what would be that one question that you would ask Jesus if there was open mic time and you had an opportunity to do that? That's the idea here. This would have been like that. Here's this scribe, one of the Pharisees who was an expert in the law of Moses. That's who the scribes were. They were experts in the law of Moses. These guys were present-day theologians. And this guy surfaces from the crowd, walks up to this open mic, if you will, and asks Jesus a question. And not just any question that he asks. Not just any question. It's the granddaddy of them all. As far as the scribes were concerned, Jesus boiled it down for us. Which commandment is the most important one? Which one takes highest priority above them all? Now, the question you need to understand wasn't unique and out of left field, out of nowhere. Among the scribes, they were constantly um, uh, debating, these scribes, about which commandments were the greater commandments and which ones held the most weight and which ones were of lesser significance. There was this ongoing debate amongst the scribes. After all, there were over 600, over 600 commandments in the law of Moses, positive and negative. And so they were constantly concerned with which ones held highest priority. We should also note that in contrast to the previous questions, Remember, of the Sadducees and the Pharisees? This seems to be an honest question by this inquirer. This is a sincere question by an intrigued inquirer rather than by a hostile enemy as the other questions had been. So he asked Jesus this question. And beloved, we should pause. 
we should pause here again to consider the fact that this man asks an, an honest question that should frankly be one of, one of great interest to each of us today, right? Whether you're in Christ or you're not in Christ, haven't you wondered over the years, when push comes to shove, what does life consist of for each of us? What does God want from me? As life gets busy and things are difficult in our world and in our country, and there's this smoke around us of so many happenings, so many changing circumstances, it's easy for us to lose sight of the main thing, isn't it? And so this is an important question of great interest to us. Maybe as you look back, it was a, this question or related questions were the questions that you were asking when God saved you. I know that for me it was. God, if you're up there, why am I here? Why am I here? What is the, the purpose of my life? What do you want from me? That was the ongoing question that I had prior to coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe you've asked that sincere question as well. Whatever this looks like, this is the question that every single one of us should ask. And so secondly, notice the comprehensive answer from Jesus in verses 29 through 31. And we're just going to begin to look at this this morning. You can imagine our Lord. All he's been asked to this point are hostile questions that are loaded, meant to discredit him. But here's a, an honest one from a scribe, from a theologian, from an expert in the law of Moses. And without hesitation, notice in verse 29, Jesus answered the foremost that is, the, the commandment of first importance is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Verse 30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And I want you to turn there, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Verses 1 through 5. And as you turn there, you need to recognize that as they heard these words from Jesus, this answer, there is nothing surprising about the Lord's answer here. Any devoted Jew, especially the religious leaders, would have known this answer. It was the creed, the confession of every Israelite from the time that you were a little tyke and you could understand anything about anything. Your Jewish parents began to teach you this great Shema that we're going to read about. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 1. Moses is preaching here a series of sermons, preparing the people for the promised land to enter Canaan finally. And he says this in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I am commanding you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O oh, Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now keep in mind, he's going to give commandment after commandment and reiterate commandment and instruction after instruction. But the first thing that he does is he calls them to attention in verse 4. And notice what it says. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is 
1. That's a statement regarding the nature of God, isn't it? The nature of God. That there is one and only one God, and He is specifically Yahweh, the God of Israel. And what is the cardinal responsibility or duty to this one God? Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. This is what Jesus references. Specifically, verses 4 and 5 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Without hesitation, he references that. And what we have here in verses 4 and 5 is what was known as the great Shema. Shema is from the Hebrew word to hear. To hear. Again, it was the great confession, the, the great creed of the Israelites, of the Jews. Every devoted Israelite and Jewish proselyte, any Gentile, non-Jew converted to Judaism, to the Jewish religion, was to know and affirm this particular creed, this particular confession of verses 4 and 5. Now go back with me to Mark chapter 12. What Jesus reminds them of here is what they should have always known and majored upon. Namely, love for God. These words were of utmost importance to the Jews. That's why the Lord is reiterating them again in His answer to this scribe. How important were these words? It was customary that in every synagogue, this great Shema was to be read before every single Jewish service to set the tone for the service, for that synagogue service. The Israelites would inscribe these words on the doorpost of their house, Why? So as not to forget about the nature of God and what God called them to primarily. Devoted Israelites would recite them in the morning and at bedtime in order to keep them on their hearts. Upon leaving their home, devoted Jewish Jews or Israelites would write them on small parchments. Parchments were the uh, thin material made of animal skin. They would write these words on, on that animal skin and they would put them in a tiny pouch or box called a phylactery. And they would carry these around with them. They would either strap it on the back of their hand or or wear it on their foreheads. So as not to forget the great Shema. Suffice it to say that all of this underscores the great utter importance of the Shema to the Israelites. Lest they forget about God's goodness and God's glory. And what God required of them from the heart. Namely, love for Him. Oh, that we would love God's Word that way, beloved. Amen? That we would have this kind of devotion to the Lord. That we would be like the, like the Israelites of the first century who would keep God's words ever before them. You know, I love visiting some of your homes over the years. And even in our home, one of the things that my wife loves to do is put up Scripture all over the walls. Where she's washing dishes. She's got all of these. She's got really good writing, by the way. I have terrible writing. I wish I could text that to myself instead, right? She's got all these wonderful scriptures all over the house. And some of you love to do that. Why do we do that? To keep the Word of God ever before us, right? To make sure that we don't forget about what God calls us to do and to be about. That's why we're doing our daily Bible reading this year, by the way. Why are we encouraging everybody as a church to be about uh, reading, getting into, into the Word of God so that we don't forget about the glory of God, beloved? about the greatness of the gospel, about the greatness of who God is and how He calls us to live. Read the Word. Memorize the Word. Meditate upon the Word. Share the Word. 
The word of God is to be uh, the utmost priority for us out of a love for him. And that's really why God had commanded them to live this out this way. Now notice that the main command that the Lord Jesus underscores about the great Shema is that of loving God, doesn't he? Loving God. And so this morning, I want us to think deeply about what it means to love God supremely as defined by this particular passage here. What does it mean to love God supremely? Now listen, if this was the question of the day, and Jesus' answer here was important for people to listen to during that time, how much more is it important for us to give heed to what Jesus says here? So make sure that you listen. Don't tune out what Jesus says here about the supreme commandment of all, because this applies to every single one of us, whether you are a believer or you are not in Christ yet. And my hope is that you will give your life to Christ today in the light of this. Here are five qualities of love for God for you to write down, okay? Five qualities of the type of love that God requires of us. First, You will note that love for God is in truth. Love for God is in truth. Look at verse 29. As Jesus answers, he includes includes here the, the, the first part of that great Shema. Hear, O Israel, he says, the Lord our God is one Lord. And back in Deuteronomy 6, 4, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. When put together, these words are an affirmation of the nature of God, aren't they? An affirmation of the one true God and His name, which is Yahweh. He is the one and only God and His name is Yahweh. He is the one true God and there is no other God. Every Israelite needed to understand this. Every Israelite needed to affirm this truth about the nature of God, that there is one God, His name is Yahweh, and there is no other God. Scripture is very clear about the fact that there is only one God, and He is the God of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 45, verses 5 through 7, we hear God speak and say this, I am the Lord, Yahweh, and there is no other Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. You think he's trying to make a point here? The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is saying, you don't need to look anywhere else to know that I'm responsible for sustaining the world. Everything that happens, the good or the bad, it comes from me. I am the only God, the one true God, and my name is Yahweh. Scripture couldn't be clear. Scripture couldn't be clear that there's only one God, and thus you and I must love this one true God of the Bible as he has revealed himself. Listen, to love anyone or anything else is to commit the sin of idolatry. To worship a God, not the God of Scripture, is to be idolatrous. That is a core sin that leads to all kinds of corruption and all kinds of chaos in our present culture and in our world. The sin of idolatry. Romans one twenty three speaks of God giving people over 
three different times to their sin. Why? Because one of the things that they do is they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Who is the creator? His name is Yahweh God, the God of the Bible, and there is no other. He is the only God. Listen, the next time that someone tells you that they believe in God, you need to follow up with another question. Which God? Which God do you believe in? And by the way, do you believe that ultimately this God has revealed himself supremely and ultimately in the person and the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man? What do you think about Jesus? Because 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says that the glory of God is ultimately manifested, revealed in the face of Christ, his son, right? So the next time somebody says, I believe in God, ask, which God do you believe in? And what do you think about his son, by the way? Is he the God-man? Is he the only savior of the world? Is he the way, the truth, and the life? And no one comes to the Father, the one true God, but through his son, Jesus Christ, the God-man? This is a day and age, beloved, to not just take people at their word when you are sharing with them, because this is a time where Satan is completely and totally leading people astray and deceiving them. A lot of polytheism, multi-gods, many gods is our culture today. So ask, because there's only one true God. This was in accordance with the great Shema. This is so critical for our worship, isn't it? To affirm the only God, the one true God, whose name is Yahweh. In John 3.24, we are told that God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit, which means sincerely from the heart, and in truth. Truth is what is real as opposed to what is false. If we're going to worship God, we must worship Him in spirit, sincerely, authentically, from the heart, and in truth, in accordance with who He is as revealed where? In the Word of God. In spirit and in truth. This means that worshiping and loving God must be in accordance with how the Bible reveals Him, not in accordance with our sinful imagination, our sinful ideas about God that are often, are often not found in the Bible. I want you to ask yourself this morning, are you worshiping and loving God as He is revealed in Scripture? Do you come to the Word of God Looking to ask yourself, who is this God? What attribute, what characteristic about God can I know this morning? And how can I praise Him for the God that He is in accordance with the Word of God? In accordance with how He's revealed Himself in Scripture. So first, love for God is in truth. It must be in accordance with who He's revealed Himself to be in God's Word, in the Bible. Second, love for God is, is essential. Love for God is essential. As opposed to secondary. As opposed to peripheral. Note the text in verse 29. It says, here. Here. That is a, a summons. That is a call to pay utmost attention to, to listen so as to appropriate, so as to obey. In other words, what you are about to hear is a must. It is essential to your life. Loving God is essential. Adding weight to this, he says, you shall love the Lord your God. 
You shall, you will love the Lord your God. The instruction carries the weight of a command. It's imperative that you love God. Loving God is essential for every single human born into this world, you understand. It is not optional. It is not a suggestion. It is not take it or leave it, whether you want to love God or not, depending on how you feel that particular day. Love for God is essential. It's like when you tell your kid, you will take the trash out. What do you expect from your kid? Well, Dad, let me think about it. Let me consider whether I really have the time to do that. Excuse me? Right? You shall take the trash out. I mean, you use the word shall. You will do this. Your expectation is that they will follow through. To love the Lord our God is essential. It's a matter of utmost importance, of utmost priority. You cannot this morning, listen to me, hearer, you cannot ignore this. You, you dare not turn a blind eye to it. You dare not be indifferent to what Jesus says in this passage. Because it is a matter of life or death, eternally speaking, for you. Whether you obey this or you don't. I must ask you this morning, do you love God today? Do you love God? And please notice that I'm not asking you, do you attend church? I'm not asking you, do you give tithes? I'm not asking you, do you belong to a Christian family? Or did you grow up in a Christian home? Or do you know a lot about the Bible? Did you get all the Awana awards? I'm not asking you this morning, do you read a lot of the Bible? Do you read a lot of theology books or church history books or doctrinal dissertations or practical devotional books? I'm not asking you any of those. I'm not even asking you, do you serve God? I'm asking you, do you love God? Do you love God? There's a difference. We've experienced it, haven't we? People that we've known in our families or over the years in the context of the church, they go through all of these motions, right? They attend church, give tithes. They grew up in a Christian home, know a lot about the Bible, grew up in Awana, serving in all kinds of ministries. They served in every capacity. They were in all the potlucks, all of those things. They didn't love God. And today, where are they? Their heart was far from God, weren't they? So I'm asking you this morning, do you love the God of the Bible? As he is defined in scripture. Even as the God who gives consequences as your heavenly father for your sin and disciplines you. Do you love that God? My answer back when I was 17 was no. I didn't love God. In fact, I hated him. And that was shown by my indifference. I didn't think about God. I didn't consider him first in my decisions. I didn't do what he said. I wouldn't talk about God to others. I wouldn't tell others about how wonderful he was and how good and gracious and kind and compassionate. I, I wouldn't tell anybody about what he had done in sending his son Jesus into the world to die for sinners. And I knew it intellectually. I knew the facts. I didn't love God. There's a difference. There's a difference. Do you love the God of the Bible this morning? Love for God is in truth. It is essential. Third, love for God is committed. Love for God is committed. 
That's the sense of the word uh, of the of the word for love. It's the word agape. This is not a an emotional kind of love, though God wants that. This is not um, limited to feelings for God, if you will, though God certainly wants those. This type of love is a committed love. It's all-encompassing. It includes everything, but it is a commitment to love Him from the core of our very hearts. What does it involve? It involves the ongoing choice of the will. So that no matter what happens, no matter what challenges you face, be it in prosperity or poverty, sickness or in health, good times, calm times, tumultuous times, you are committed from the heart by the grace of God to love Him. It's a committed love. So that come what may come, you are committed to supremely being devoted to Him. This love is not circumstantial. This love is not wishy-washy, half in, half out. It's not conditional. It's not dependent on whether God gives you what you want and when you want it. We must never treat God as some kind of cosmic genie. Or we expect God to say to us when we ask Him for something, your wish is my command, my child, or my creature. No, this love is committed no matter what may come. Or no matter what God brings. Because this kind of love is a trusting kind of love, isn't it? We know Him. We understand Him. We see Him on the pages of Scripture and His consistent holy character in dealing with people. And we trust Him. And therefore, we are committed to following Him and loving Him no matter what happens in life, right? Love for God is in truth. It is essential. It is committed. Fourth, love for God is exclusive. Love for God is exclusive. Look at the text. And you shall love who? The Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God. Our love is God-directed, isn't it? We are called to love God alone and no other gods exclusively and singularly. Please hear me. You can't love God supremely like this in the way that God is commanding you to love God here and follow Muhammad. You can't love God supremely and follow the teachings or adhere to the teachings of Joseph Smith of the Mormons. You cannot love God like this and be a JW on the side, a Jehovah's Witness. And by the way, reject the deity of Christ, that Jesus is both God and man 100%. He is the God-man who alone qualified to go to the cross and die for our sins. If you love God, you will affirm who Jesus is. You cannot say you love God and deify the Virgin Mary. I've spoken to people, I love the Lord and I love the Virgin Mary because of how much she's done for me. And then they go on and talk about the Virgin Mary. Listen to me, you can't say you love God like this and deify the Virgin Mary who was just a humble servant of the Lord. That's who she was. You cannot say you love God and adopt New Age doctrine. You can't say you love God and adopt the secular thinking of the world, giving into the corrupt ideological fortresses of our current culture, such as feminism, such as the LGBTQ plus whatever, whatever movement. Did you hear, by the way, Colton Underwood was a star on The Bachelor not too long ago. I have no idea who this guy is. I just read these articles, but he was a star on the show The Bachelor just came out and said that he is gay 
And essentially, he feels closer to God than ever before with that affirmation now. This is the world that we're living in. What a lie. Listen, you may struggle with any sin, including homosexuality. You may struggle with that even as a Christian, but you will never, ever, ever give in to that sin or condone that type of behavior, right? Because what does the Scripture say? Galatians 5.21, that those who practice such things as a pattern, in other words, giving themselves over to those lifestyles, including homosexuality, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is the confusion about? You can't love God and worship your sin. You can't love God and be giving yourself over to pornography in a comfortable way, in secret, where nobody's watching you except, listen to me, always in the presence of God. You can't say you love God and be giving yourself over to pornography and not confessing that to the Lord and getting help from others who can come alongside of you and bear your burden with you and keep you accountable to those sins. You can't say you love God and worship materialism or the insatiable desire for worldly success and the approval of man. Hear me. God wants your exclusive love and my exclusive love. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods besides me. And God wasn't only talking about little statutes that you put in front of you and you bow to them, those gods. Materialism can be a god. Sinful pleasure can be a, a, a god. Any pet sin can be something that we idolize and worship and elevate above God. Those are gods with a little g that we worship. Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, You cannot serve God and mammon. You will either hate the one and love the other. God wants our exclusive love. James 4.4 Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And friendship there has to do with intimate association and adoption of the world's thinking. Not loving the world and loving sinners like we are called to so that we might share Christ with them. But doing, following the course of this world. Doing what the unbelieving world is doing. That is friendship with the world. Intimate association with the world. Doesn't honor the Lord. Love for God is in truth. That's essential, committed, exclusive Fifth, love for God is wholehearted. Love for God is wholehearted. And we're going to look at that next week. But suffice it to say, God wants all of us, doesn't He? He wants every single aspect of our lives. He wants our, our, our exclusive love. He wants our devotion. It goes back to the sermon a couple of weeks ago, doesn't it? On God and the government. Give God what He rightfully deserves, namely yourself. All of you was the point. The greater point that He made there. It's not enough to have some general interest in God, to acknowledge a certain set of facts about God. It's not enough to at one time simply walk an aisle, pray a prayer, attend church. It's much deeper and much more profound than that, isn't it? Much more substantial than that, to love God unreservedly. To love God in an unrivaled kind of way. Listen, beloved, God requires perfect adherence summed up in the greatest commandment of all, perfect love. This is His divine standard. 
perfect obedience to the law. And from the heart, that we ought to love God supremely, even as we're going to see next week. And I don't know about you, but as I read texts like these and I study them over the years, I remember the first time that the Lord opened my eyes to understanding what Jesus was saying here. And I got to tell you, I felt the weight of it. I felt the full weight of it. It was like a, like a tidal wave that came crashing down upon me when I, I understood the divine standard and the weight of God's law upon me and from the heart to love Him in this supreme kind of way. And you know what? It's by God's design that we feel that way. It's by God's design that we understand that we cannot fulfill this perfectly. That is why Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says that the, at the function of the law, the Torah, the law of Moses, is to be a tutor that leads us to who? To Christ. A schoolmaster that leads us to Christ because the law exposes, first of all, it shows us the great holiness of God and then exposes our, our utter inadequacy before this holy and righteous God. That we simply can't measure up to His perfect standard. And that's how passages like these make you feel, don't they? I fall so short of this. There is just no way that I could do this. And you feel the full weight of this. And this is by God's divine design, you understand. So that you would apply the balm of Christ to your soul. Beloved, Jesus had to come. Because this is the standard of God that no human being can do perfectly, but this is the standard nevertheless. See, some people think that God will sort of one day grade you on a curve. That as long as you're generally good and you're doing well in comparison to other sinners like you, then you're going to be okay. But that's not the way that it is. That's not the way that it is. God demands and requires perfect 100% obedience, not only in your outward actions, but in your heart devotion. Perfect love is what He demands from us. And all of us fall short. James 2.10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, he has become guilty of it all. I mean, even if it were possible for the best somebody amongst us to arise and say, I have 99.99999% fulfilled all of God's commandments, even if in one thought, in one sinful motive, you had gone wrong, you have broken all of the law. It's like going out of bounds on a soccer field, right? Even if you went out of bounds all the way in the corner by one of the flagpoles, change of possession, you're out of bounds. You're out of bounds. That's the idea of the law. It rises or stands alone, together. Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Just ponder that for a minute. Ponder that. You're never to have a sinful thought. You're never to have a sinful attitude. You're never to have a sinful motivation, a sinful priority, or a misplaced priority where you elevate anything above God. Otherwise, it's idolatry. You're never to be bitter. You're never to be sinfully angry. You're never to be, have a kind word, utter an, utter, a, a, an unkind word towards anyone. Perform a sinful action against anyone. 
perform a hateful act against anyone, have a bad thought against somebody else or about someone. Never. Perfection is what God requires of us. And who can do that? Who can do that? Who can offer God perfect, wholehearted love from the heart that manifests itself in perfect outward obedience? No one can, beloved. Amen? And this is why the gospel is wonderful, isn't it? This is the wonder of the gospel because Jesus, who is the good news, did exactly what none of us could do, even in our best trying, in our best efforts. Christ alone fulfilled the law perfectly by virtue of his active obedience. He perfectly fulfilled all of God's righteous commandments, requirements. He perfectly loved his heavenly father, perfectly was devoted to him. And therefore, he is the only one who alone qualified to go to the cross as the great sin bearer, blameless, perfect lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus. Jesus alone did what none of us could do. The law condemns us. How? By setting an insurmountable standard that no imperfect fallen sinner can meet. That's why Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the function of the law. So none of us can meet this perfect standard. And you see, this is when we begin to realize this, that we can't do this perfectly, This is when we fall on our face before God to confess that, right? J.C. Ryle writes this, Let us learn from this brief exposition of the true standard of duty. How great is the need in which we all naturally stand of the atonement and the mediation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where are the men or women who can say with truth that they perfectly love God and perfectly love their neighbor? Where is the person on earth who must not plead guilty when tried by such a law as this? No wonder the scripture says there is none righteous, no, not one. And therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, Romans 3, 10 and 20. It is only gross ignorance of the requirements of God's law, which makes people undervalue the gospel. The person who has the clearest view of the moral law will always be the person with the highest sense of the value of Christ's atoning blood. What's he saying? The more that you realize that you can't meet God's standard, the more that you treasure Christ. Amen? Some of you this morning need to see this for the first time. That there is no way that you can obey this commandment perfectly. No one can. You need the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. His perfect life, His perfect love by which He loved His heavenly Father, and His atoning death and sacrifice on the cross for your sins. This has been my prayer this morning. That you would call out to God, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve your judgment. I know that there's nothing that I can do to save myself. Please save me. I repent of my sins, and I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my only hope for the forgiveness of sins. He's my only hope that I would be reconciled to you. He's my only hope for eternal life. I have been praying that you would do that this morning. That you would recognize that you cannot save yourself. That you cannot do what Jesus asks people to do here and do it perfectly. But he did it on your behalf if you will 
trust him, if you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are saved, who have entered into God's kingdom by faith in Christ, can I ask you this morning, by God's grace, are you seeking to cultivate this kind of love for God? Are you seeking to cultivate this kind of love for God by God's grace and in the power of the Spirit? Is, God's, is loving God your first priority? Or have you left your first love? Maybe success has become your priority. Maybe education and career are what you're fixated upon and you've elevated that above love for God. Sinful pleasure and sinful lust perhaps has become a greater love for you. Maybe the wrong kind of people and friendships have become a greater love for you. The world, worldly ideas, worldly thinking have become a greater love for you. To you, Christian, this morning, I would say, repent and return to your first love. That's what our Lord said to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2.4. But I have this against you writing to Christians, professing believers, that you have left your first love. What love is that? Love for God. Love for Christ. He says the same thing to us today, believer, Christian. Cultivate again, renew again by God's grace that love for the Lord that is supreme, that is above anything and everything. Amen? We'll look at the rest of this passage later on. I mean, let next week. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, thank you for the depth of your word. Father, it is so difficult just to see the profound implications in a short time of this great passage because it's got implication for everything that we do, even the way that we, Lord, treat one another as we're going to see next week. It is out of the overflow of love for you that then we can, Lord, love other people, beginning with those in our home, the brethren, the non-believing world. Oh, Lord, teach us this morning by your grace and in the power of your spirit to be people who love you in this kind of way, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.